Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this week's episode of Just the Facts with me, Alex Zane, the podcast that takes us on a journey through the movie CV of a different actor or filmmaker every week to uncover some fascinating facts about their career. Remember, for all the latest news and updates about upcoming guests, you can and indeed should follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at JTFpod, and that is where you can also get in touch should you wish to. Uh, a couple of new listeners did exactly that this week. So I thought I'd say hello. Hello to Lynn Caban, listening in Australia. Hello, Lynn. And Empathy072 from Virginia. Virginia. From Virginia in the USA. Hello, Empathy072. And they both said they enjoyed last week's chat with Rosie Day. Thank you for listening, guys. And thank you uh, for enjoying the chat, I guess. Cheers. All right. All right. Lovely. Also, uh, this is going back a couple of weeks now. But um, <laughs> the argument is still raging. I mean, it feels like an argument that is going to rage ad infinitum. I don't think anyone's going to get bored of arguing about Star Wars, and I don't think anyone's going to get bored of arguing about the Star Wars prequels, but it feels like it was reignited a couple of weeks ago when we had Rahul Kohli on the show, and he professed and explained his reasoning for why he loves the Star Wars prequels. Anyway, it started a conversation and it's still going on on our Instagram page at JTFpod. If you want to get your opinion out there, if you if you feel like there is still stuff to say about the Star Wars prequels that hasn't been said before, then this is an opportunity to rekindle those age-old arguments 
on our Instagram page at JTF Pod. So check it out if you want. If you want, or you can just sit back and spectate. It's kind of interesting. I've been enjoying it. Uh, another quick thing. Uh, we are 10 episodes in now, and I think we've all got how this works. And when I say we, I am including me in that sentence. But here is another reminder. If you do want to watch the full video interview of each podcast, we film the whole thing. It goes up on our YouTube page, Just the Facts, on the Friday after the podcast is released. So that's the thing. I always sort of go, it's later in the week. It's a few days' time. So it's Friday. Podcast goes out on Tuesday. Video interview goes out on the Friday. So it's uh, simple. Tuesday, pod day, Friday, film day. That's it. That's what I'm going to say from here on in. I'm not going to waste our time doing this again. Tuesday, pod day, Friday, film day. Right then, let's talk about this week's guest. My guest this week is a man I first met in 2003 on the set of the Pitch Black sequel, The Chronicles of Riddick. I think it's fair to say that that is a pretty divisive movie, The Chronicles of Riddick. Um, I absolutely love it. I love it more than Pitch Black. I'm not just saying that to be provocative. It genuinely, probably it upsets me more often than it should that we didn't get the planned Chronicles of Riddick trilogy that was going to happen had the Chronicles of Riddick been a bigger hit. Obviously, we got a third Riddick movie. There is a conversation ongoing at the moment about a fourth Riddick movie, Riddick Furia. I kind of wish we'd been able to go into the underverse with him. Maybe that will happen in the future. I don't know. If you haven't seen the Chronicles of Riddick, this won't make a lot of sense. I think you should watch it. I think that's clear. I love that movie. Anyway, to talk about Pitch Black and the Riddick sequels, is the writer and director of those films. He also wrote The Fugitive. He wrote Waterworld. He worked on and then left the troubled production that was Alien 3. We talk about all of that and a lot more. So please welcome to Just The Facts, David Toohey. Okay, hello, Alex. How are you? David Toohey. Good to speak to you. I see, um, and this won't work for the audio portion of this show, but you got the memo about the black T-shirt then. We're both going for the black today. I love it. Yeah. Let's uh, have a vote online and let's see uh, who wears it better. <laughs> yeah. Let's start, the, let's start our conversation with a little bit of competition. This is exciting for me, though, because I think I, uh, I, think I mentioned in the email, this is something of a, a reunion. It has been 17 years since I last interviewed you. Oh, don't say that. You're talking about uh, Chronicles, after Chronicles came out? Yeah, that's or during right. its release? Yeah. It was actually uh, in Vancouver. I, I visited the set of Chronicles of Riddick, and it's... Amazing have, sets, huh? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, it's to date, and I've been on a fair few sets since then. To date, I think they are the biggest sets of a film I've ever been on. <laughs> they were vast. Well, not that that should be any claim to fame, uh, but <laughs> it might be... It might have been the high watermark for building, at least in you know during the Vancouver uh, in the heyday of Vancouver, and certainly not the way we do things today. No, but um, but there is something exciting about seeing like a city set go up, and uh, the Necropolis set when you uh, walk into the the Necromonger <clears throat> Grand Hall there, Valhalla, and you and you see that and you see it built for real up to the thirty foot mark. That There's was something. The very exciting about that, and mm. not just for me as the filmmaker who put it down on paper first and then gets to see it. You know, who said, who said uh, the great thing about writing, I think it was um, Ray Bradbury, the great thing about writing is that you can build anything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but to, so you're, you're used to building it on paper, mm. but to see it 
go up in, in wood and plaster and styrofoam and, you, and, and, and the great artisans who make all that seem real. Mm. That is something else entirely. So it may have been the high watermark for um, building sets, uh, real sets. But the point was that it's not just good for me as the creator, and it just doesn't stroke my ego to see it being built, but for the actors to wander onto that set yeah. and see, oh, God, now I get it. Now I get how the grandeur of the Necromonger Empire. And then they play to that. It they was, really um, play to that. Yeah, it was, it was, like you say, it was the fact that it was three stories high. And, and also, I mean, I, I love the surface of crematoria bouncing around on that styrofoam surface. It was huge. It was a wonderful... Wonderful experience. And I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now because it's going to come out at some point in our chat, but Chronicles is my favorite of your Riddick series so far. I will say so far, huh. but I love Chronicles. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, is it, is it maybe your favorite too? So hard to say. First of all, I'll give you other people's reactions first. <clears throat> I'm going to tell the audience what they think. Uh, <laughs> no. It's funny the reactions you get to all the three different movies because they are very different movies, aren't they? Mm. Um, and look, they're, they're aficionados of Pitch Black. They think it's pure and simple and uh, just great simple storytelling with a redeemed character. So they gravitate to that. And then there are the people who thought that was maybe too modest of a film. Uh, and then here we come with the grand space opera called Chronicles of Riddick. And suddenly they go, that's what I'm after. You know, I'm after <laughs> world-ending bad guys, world-ending consequences, um, and all, everything we did in that. And, and weird quasi-deads and half-deads and it, all the crazy stuff we did in Chronicles. And they, and they love that, as, as I guess you do. And then um, there are people who really appreciate us getting back to our roots with Riddick and uh, doing uh, something more streamlined yet again. Mm. So... You know, it's it's one it's not many franchises can bounce around like that in terms of scope and then in terms of sometimes genre as well. Because the thinking after Pitch Black was that we're going to follow the Riddick character wherever he goes, and even if he goes into a a um, a slightly different genre, we will follow him there mm. because he is Riddick. Mm. He's Riddick. So that was our um, that was our mantra for movie two. And some people think we went too far. The studios certainly think we spent too much. The studios certainly think <laughs> we built too much because I remember the president of the studio coming for a tour and just saying, what, you don't need all this? Why are you building so much? And maybe, uh, and maybe it was because we could build as much as we did that we did build because everyone wants to exercise, you know, uh, work in that environment at least one time in their life. And, then, mm -hmm. and that was our, our time. Well, I mean, you mentioned Pitch Black, and I think, you know, before we talk a little more about Chronicles, it is worth going back to the start. But I did just want to touch on something before we talk about Pitch Black, because obviously you've been working uh, in the industry for a while before Pitch Black entered your orbit. And uh, you worked on, you know, a couple of iconic films from the 90s, The Fugitive being one, Waterworld being another, and I'm a big fan of that movie. Um what were those experiences like working on those, on those productions? Well, let's see, you know, I was, <clears throat> I was uh, just getting um, started as a writer back then because I really entered the industry probably uh, 
by 1980, I guess, something like that. Oh, sorry, 19, uh, I joined the Rescue in 1988. So there you go. So I hit pretty quick with um, The Fugitive, right? Yeah. And not many writers are that fortunate to strike gold that early in their career. And that set up my directing career. So uh, question of what was it like on those? I was uh, never on the set of The Fugitive, um, even though I wrote uh, the original script and did, you know, four or five drafts. I had a, um, a push-pull relationship, love-hate relationship with the producer, Arnold Culpeson, who uh, I had done a small low-budget horror movie with called Warlock. Yeah. And, and uh, on the first day of production on that set, we were on, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, freezing our asses off because it was February. And we were, we were, we were at a uh, period... A uh, period facility where um, it's his old like pilgrim facility that's kept up to date. So we were using their facilities to film at because we had a period uh, section of the movie Warlock. Anyway, cold as hell, we were in this hovel, <laughs> huddled around a brazier, and the producer of that movie, who was Arnold Colbson, said, "You know, I got these rights to uh, to a couple of TV series. You may not remember them." Um, and one was, uh, I forget, and they were the old Keith Bears um, uh, TV shows from the 60s. And he said the other one's called The Fugitive. And I said, I do remember it. I'm because not in the first run, but I, I saw it in reruns. I liked it a lot. I liked David Jansen a lot. And it's uh, Les Miserables. He says, it is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's Les Miserables. It's, it's man wrongly accused. And Inspector Javert is Inspector Gerard. Or- yeah. <laughs> And uh, so that's why I wrote the, um, the, uh, the sewer sequence into The Fugitive as a tribute to the sewer sequence in Les Miserables. Wow. So when Tommy Lee Jones is chasing him through the, the, wa- the waterways, and yeah. then prior to the big jump off, um, that was the tribute to Les Miserables. So the producer had no idea, he had no idea what he had, and I said, I'll write that. And then we cut a deal right there in the, in the little hovel, hmm. in the little yurt, <laughs> and uh, my agent says, what are you doing negotiating your own deals? I said, well, it's <laughs> an opportunity. And I got twice when I got on Warlock. <laughs> he says, I could have got you three times, but okay, here you go. But it turned out okay. Yeah, I mean, it was the little movie that could kind of. I don't think there were huge expectations for it. And then obviously it went on to have so much success. Tommy Lee Jones. Sorry, we're talking the- about Warlock or are we talking about oh, The Fugitive? Oh, sorry, we're talking about The Fugitive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't the, no, it was never the little movie that could because it was always a Warner Brothers movie and they mm. put a big star in it. So. Um, but I don't but, remember. I, I don't, I, was it not that... Uh, I don't think anyone expected it to sort of snaffle up seven Oscar nominations. It wasn't... I don't think it was orbiting it that arena. Correct. Nobody was thinking that at the time. Uh, and nobody was thinking that it would be the number one movie in America or North America for six weeks running, yeah. which is almost unheard of. Almost yeah. unheard of. So that set up a lot of other things for me, including my first uh, directing gig. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously Waterworld, God, I mean, as, as a film, I mean, Waterworld is one of those films that I somehow still, even now, has this terrible reputation of being a flop, which it never was. It's, you know, it, it's not a flop, you know, just it had um, uh, obviously the bad production stories that emerged from behind the scenes. But 
when you came to the script, so Peter Radar had written this script, which, I mean, it sounds fascinating. By all accounts, this was a kind of surreal script that had the Deacon character was, was called Neptune. He had a trident. He sat on a clam throne. Uh, the Mariner had a white horse that he hid from people on his boat. Was this the I script? I forgot about most of this. I forgot about most of that. Yeah, that was in the original script, Peter's script? Yeah. Huh. I oh. just want, so is that the script that you uh, you inherited when you started working on it? I did. Um, I did. I knew Kevin Reynolds, the director, who was going to direct a different movie of mine, Terminal Velocity, but who bailed to do um, Waterworld because Kevin Costner, he bashed things up with Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were off and running. So he wanted me to come in and retool. Uh, which I did. So I was basically listening to his ideas, throwing in a few of my own, listening to Costner a bit, and then um, wrote largely what you see on the screen. And Peter and I today share story credit. And Peter and I are so friendly. Sometimes when you rewrite another writer, especially mm-hmm. their original work, and you especially, you're making sometimes wholesale changes, you know, often that can be an antagonistic situation for writers. But uh, Peter and I actually um, got to be friends afterwards, and uh, and that's cool. And was it as chaotic as the the, the stories go behind the scenes on that film? Um, as I understand it, yeah, I was on the set, but for a few days. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Kevin Reynolds tells some wild stories. There was there was one. One day when um, they were uh, filming a, a shot, he wanted to get a hero shot, a, tra- a trailer shot, with Kevin Costner in the crow's nest of the trimaran. Mm-hmm. And he wanted it against the sun. So Costner is saying, like, do I have to be there? I've got a stuntman. You can, you can put him up there. No, we got to put you up there. And we got to <laughs> lash you up there because it could be, you know, for safety reasons. We've got to lash you up there. So Costner did it. And uh, Reynolds, the director, is in the helicopter. And so he's starting on, a, on 11 to 1 Zoom, which was the biggest of the time. And he starts on a, on a medium close-up of Costner into the wind. It's like the, the bow shot from Titanic, right? And then you pull back, the helicopter circles around, and then they're trying around. Uh, you see a small trimaran heading into the into the sun. So they did that a few times right around sun, sunset. They got their shot. Kevin Reynolds says, "Bye. I'll see you in. Uh, I'll see you at the at the bar in town." But then the sundowner winds come up, and Costner is still lashed to the mast. <laughs> and so apparently he's going from side to side, side to side, and it's so severe that they can't even unlash him to get him down. <laughs> So he has to just ride out the sundowner winds, just going back and forth and back and forth, lashing. So that's kind of craziness that was going on, among other things like the atoll set sinking. Yep. Sinking. But, you know, it got a lot of, um, Waterworld got a lot of abuse heaped on it before anybody had seen it. And that right. was my objection. I mean, you can look at the movie now and, critis- and critique it. I think it's a great first half of a movie. And the second half gets kind of choppy, and sometimes you don't know why characters are doing the things they are or how they knew to do things that they needed to do. Mm. And that's because the second, you know, the movie was running long, very long, and the studio came in and um, took the took the movie away from Reynolds and started chopping it up. 
So that's why it's chopped in the second half. But it's a hell of a rousing adventure movie, at least in the first half, and, and sometimes oh, yeah. throughout. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, you look at it even now, and I guess especially now, and you can't fault the ambition of that film in terms of what, what they set out to do, what you all set out to do, and, and doing it at sea. Um, I mean... By the way, Raider tells a funny story about how when he first was pitching the script around, he took, it to, he took the script or the idea to, um, like, Roger Corman. Yeah. Who was, the, you know, the king of the low-budget movies. And... Corman looked at him and looked at the script and says, are you kidding? you crazy? This is going to cost me $5 million. <laughs> um, of what made it um, onto screen, is there something that you're personally most proud of that you, um, that you contributed to, to that film? Is there a moment uh, that you love that even now you look back on and go, I'm, I'm glad that made it in. I'm glad I included that. I'm glad I came up with that. Uh, the set pieces are sort of what Costner, um, Reynolds was really looking to me to supply. So the trimaran, um, a hunt in the beginning, the, um, I think the whole concept, not the whole concept of the atoll, that was in Peter's original. Uh, but the whole attack where the, the biplane or the plane is mm. circling a ship, it harpoons, it, the plane itself gets harpooned, and then it starts winding itself up on the mast, going yep. around and around, and the, and the circumference gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. All that kind of stuff. And, um, and the funny stuff of the, below the hold of, the, uh, of the, what turns out to be the Exxon Valdez, mm. that the smokers are down there um, running around in like old Cadillacs and shit like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. That, um, <laughs> that's me and Reynolds sort of going off into bizarre humor land together. <laughs> And then, uh, then the deacon is throwing out cigarettes like you'd throw out, you know, mana <laughs> to, to just, just to keep the populace under control. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a little guy. The guy the in bottom. the oil. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. I just remember yeah. him. I haven't thought of him in probably many a year, but there's this little guy down at the bottom and he's the human fuel gauge. Yeah. So he's got a little boat at the bottom. How much more we got? Not much, sir. It's <laughs> yeah. like kill that guy. I don't like the answer game. Uh, yeah, that's uh, he's 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 beautiful. It's uh, the moment where I think uh, a cigarette goes down there uh, just be, just seconds before he dies. <laughs> he goes, "Oh, thank God! It's a really <laughs> nice touch." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I don't even know if I wrote that or if uh, Reynolds did it on the set. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm relieved from duty. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that sounds like a fun experience. And obviously, um, one other thing before uh, we get to Pitch Black uh, is By the Alien. Way, we should, wait, let me just finish up on Water World yeah. real quick. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I was getting so disgusted with all the criticism that was heaped on this movie. Mm. before it was released, before while they were still filming, just based on its budget, that I took out full-page ads in Hollywood Reporter and Variety and said, hey, you know, if your occupation, if, if your livelihood depends on anything in this business, whether you're a writer, a director, craft service, photog uh, cinematographer, sound guy, you know, you should just shut the hell up until the movie comes out, then criticize the movie. You know, because... It's if you're yeah. doing it now, you're just feeding on yourself, right? You're just dragging down your own industry for no good reason because you haven't seen the movie yet. 
Mm. So, and by the way, if, why are we obsessed about a budget? If, if, if it's the movie is $175 million, which I think it was, mm. and that causes the price of the movie ticket to go up to double on you, then you can bitch about the price of the budget. <laughs> but other than that, why are you even talking about the budget? It's going to be seven fifty in the theater, no matter what you say about the budget. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it like that. That's very true. Um, I, it is this fascination that people have. And even I, I'd probably say even more so now, you know, with um, social media, with the stories behind movies and things going wrong and, you know, the rumor mill, how it turns and how that generates press in itself. It's... Uh, yeah, yeah. That was a big thing. That's quite a bold thing to do, to take out full-page ads. And, I mean, it kind of leads nicely on to my next question, really, which was, I believe this story does end up with quite another bold move uh, for a writer in the industry, which was your experience of working on Alien 3. Um, so just to, just to paint a picture for anyone who doesn't know the story behind Alien 3, and where you... Uh, fit into the, the chronology. It was William Gibson's uh, script. So William Gibson had written a script, uh, and that was the script that that then you came on board and were, I guess, presented with as as the script to develop, work on, improve. If you say so. Okay. Meaning, <clears throat> some of the um, some of the pedigree of these of these scripts and the script chains. You may know more about than I do, but yeah, there was another writer beforehand. I think it was William Gibson. I cannot remember anything about his script, except perhaps it was way too cyberpunky. Yeah, I think it was, I think the story. Well, as far as I know, because William his script then got made into a graphic novel, so it sort of it found its way into the ether um, uh, eventually. Um, but it was it was a script that jettisoned Ripley quite early uh, as uh, it, it's the is the big thing about that mm-hmm. script. It was a script that mm-hmm. lost Ripley. And as far as, and again, obviously you're the right man to tell me, but as far as I was aware, that was one of the things that was tasked to you was to find a way to bring Ripley back because Fox weren't happy about Ripley not being in it. Yes and no. <clears throat> it, it goes like this and it's quite a saga. Um, it's like, how do you know, how do I tell it concisely? But I was brought aboard by the producers, Walter Hill, David Geiler, and those guys. And they said, so, and because they had read The Fugitive. Mm. And Walter Hill even wanted to direct, direct The Fugitive at one point. <laughs> um, so they were, they were keen to, to bring me on board. So there I was. Rennie Harlan was attached to the director at the time. And all I remember Rennie saying is, I want to see sex in space. <laughs> 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 so I said, okay, we can do that. Uh, but there should be a larger story around that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think in Gibson's, uh, oh God, I can't even remember. But uh, in terms of Ripley, they said, and we don't need Sigourney in mm. at the time. That was the feeling when I did my first draft. We don't need Sigourney in this because for whatever reason. I said, fine, I'll do that. So I wrote an escape story in space. There is a uh, um, an orbiting space station uh, and it's a breakout movie um, with aliens, right? And they're using the prisoners to experiment on with the aliens to understand the aliens better. And there's all kinds of jeopardy. It was, you know, it was a good action story. But then Joe Roth takes over the studio, Fox, and he mm-hmm. reads the script. He says, it is a good action movie, but I'm not going to make the movie without Sir Gurney Weaver. 
And so I go back to the producers and or huddle with the producers after that meeting. It says, has anyone, has anyone talked to her? <laughs> said, no, we haven't talked to her. I said, oh, well, somebody ought to because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be the next step. And so for some reason, I got sent out to New York just on my own to uh, talk to Sigourney. And I told her the story that we had. And I think she may have read the existing script. And I said, so if I can take the male character styles and turn that into Ripley with this conversion idea, this conversion idea, this conversion idea, is that something you'd be interested in? And at the end of a, you know, two hour meeting with Sigourney, she says, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to, I think I'd like to do this. Of course, you know, that's, they're backing up with a million dollar offer as well. So <laughs> she may have been predisposed, but so I remember getting on the plane, calling the producers from the plane and saying, okay, she's in, let's get going. So I wrote my second draft with Ripley. I think I wrote my second draft with Ripley, but before I'd finished my second draft, I heard that, they had replaced the director and um, put on the New Zealand guy. Vincent Ward. Vincent Ward. Mm. Thank you. And that Vincent Ward was working with his writer on an alien script. Now, this is while I'm writing my (laughs) second draft with Ripley in it and talking to... Sigourney along the way, you know, filling her in from time to time. So I called up the studio. And by the way, if a, a studio is allowed to engage two, two screenwriters at once, as long as they make it apparent, as long as there's full transparency, so that the writer can jump off a project or, and, or stay on if, in fact, it turns into a bake-off situation. Right. So I called up the studio, the executive studio, who is now a film critic, I think. Or no, he's a, he's a film producer now. And I said, uh, so what is this about competing drafts of Alien 3? And he said, oh, no, 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 it's not that at all. You don't have to worry about that at all. You're writing Alien 3. Vincent, the director of Alien 3, is writing Alien 4. (laughs) So I said, (laughs) I said, this is horse shit. You're not even trying. You are not even trying to lie. (laughs) It's not that, yeah. It's not only is it a terrible lie, but you're, you're, you're making me, you think I'm stupid enough to believe it. Wow. That's what's so insult. That's a doubly insult. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And um, so it's it just treacherous behavior by the studio. So I slapped the script together and said, pay me. There you go. And I think that was the last, uh, last I worked on Alien 3. So I probably did two drafts. Maybe there might have been a third in there. I'm not sure. That's what happened. And then Vincent yeah. Ward got kicked off because, um, you know, in, in, in lieu of David Fincher. Did you, uh, did you ever watch the final movie? Did you see anything that you liked yes. about it? Or did you, did you see any of your work in there? In that I final saw my version? name in there because as an inside joke, all the monks, I didn't have monks in space. Uh, all the monks were named for all the previous writers. Oh, wow. I did not yeah. know that. So I think there's an Eric and there's a David and there may have been a Vincent for all I know. <laughs> oh, if wow. You, if you look at those names, there is a, uh, there's a, an Easter egg in the names. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, right. Let's talk, let's talk about um, your um, alien movie, the, the movie that really generated one of the most iconic characters in sci-fi for a long time. I'm a huge fan of Riddick. When you first, um, when you first uh, were involved in the script, I'm right in thinking Radar Pictures, a, a small production company, have a script um, that they show to you. And at that stage, it's called Nightfall. Yes. And they're interested in you taking on the script, improving it because it needed a lot of work uh, with a view to potentially directing this movie. And this is the movie that would become Pitch Black. Yes. Originally called Nightfall. Mm. Um, to be confused with the uh, short story by Isaac Asimov called Nightfall, which also has a... Uh, a uh, spectacular eclipse at its core. Hmm. So I mentioned that <laughs> there's a similarity here that we may want to not embrace, but avoid. Yeah. So uh, that resulted in the title change to pitch black. Um, so yes, radar came to me and they started playing this game. Well, if you can make the script better, better enough that we can get it made, meaning mm -hmm. get financing get our Lord and Masters polygram to say yes, then you can direct it. And it's a game I played, you know, many times before and, and sometimes mostly lost at, including The Fugitive, where they played this game with me. Warner Brothers played this game with me. If you can, all right, you can direct it. 
if you can get one of these seven guys to say yes, and they were the seven guys at the time, you know? Wow. Include, okay. We'll leave it there. Um, oh, you can tell me. I mean, it's, it's, it's ancient history now. Well, here's another bit of studio treachery and predatorial treachery. <laughs> they played this game with young directors or, or writers who are up and coming who want to direct. Hmm. It's like, all right, we'll let you direct if you can get one of these seven guys to star in your movie. And the seven guys were Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner, Harrison Ford, uh, fill in the blanks, whoever it was at the time. I think I maybe lobbied to put Alec Baldwin on there because he was, you know, it was around Red October time. He was yeah. hot. And I thought he was somebody I could get. I didn't think I could get those other guys, but maybe Alec Baldwin. So he may have been on the list as well. And um, so I finished like probably my second draft and it's, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a hot script in town. People are really digging it. And then the producer calls me up and says, Sorry, you're fired. This is Arnold Copelson again. Right. You're fired. Really? Why is that? Well, the studio just thinks you're written out, which is the classic, <laughs> the classic reason for jettisoning a writer, right? The classic reason given. Well, which means, which means what? You've, you've done all that you can do on it when they say written out? That's what it's supposed to mean. But in right. actuality, it means Harrison Ford read it, likes it, wants to do it. Harrison Ford is on the list of people... That said, that we gave you to get, but he's not going to do it with you, right? <laughs> or we're not going to let you do it with him, okay? Because he doesn't want to work with first, second time directors, right? He wants right. to work with. And so, uh, boom, gone, just like that. Jeez. So that was. How do we get off on that story? Oh, so that's the game they play with um, uh, a step up and coming writers and um, neophyte directors. They played the game again on me with Pitch Black, but this time it worked. And this time it worked because the budget was contained. Mm. You know, we were talking about a $20 million picture, not an $80 million picture. <laughs> so, uh, so it worked this time. I betted the script, improved the script. Polygram wanted to make it. And so they said, we're up and running. Now, now who's going to star in it? And uh, I'm right in thinking that the character Riddick was not in this original script. There was something, it was a criminal, there was a criminal of sorts, but this Riddick was something you built from pretty much the ground up. Correct. There was a female uh, criminal board who is not the lead and who is uh, not the Riddick character we know. Mm. Yeah, so, something else. It played us entirely differently. Obviously, Vin is, is, is Riddick. Riddick is Vin. Uh, you know, he's of all the characters Vin uh, has in his arsenal. Riddick is my personal favorite. He is for a lot of people. I don't think I'm alone in saying that. But, um, but Vin wasn't, uh, wasn't an immediate shoo-in. There was someone else who was, uh, who was being uh, suggested quite heavily that you cast as Riddick. I, I, I'm right in thinking that. Somebody else that I didn't cast as Riddick, you mean? Somebody else who you, who you did not cast, but who oh. was being heavily pushed uh, for the, the, the role. Would you be thinking of Steven Seagal? I would be thinking of Steven Seagal. I only discovered this the other day, and it amazed me. I'm like, what a different film that would have been had Steven Seagal ended up as the Riddick we know. How, 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 how did that happen? What happened? Well done. <laughs> Uh, I was down in Australia in pre-production and just starting to build sets down there. It's got locations and starting to uh, secure stage space. And we still hadn't cast the, the Riddick role. Mm. 
and people were getting nervous. And so somebody from Radar said to me, how about Steven Seagal? He gets the movie made. And I said, not going to do that. Just not going to do that. And they said, well, David, it may be, a, you may have the choice of making the movie with Steven Seagal or not making the movie at all. Because we, we may just get shut down by, by Polygram. If you can't deliver somebody of note. And so I said, I would rather shut it down. Wow. So that was one of those moments where you think, where you re- you're on the phone and you realize this is a life-changing moment right here. Yeah. You know, which way, which way am I going to go? And had, had you seen Vin by this point? No. Um, so I'm talking to a mid-level guy at uh, Radar, and I said, I'd rather shut it down. So there's your answer. Take it back to your Lord and Master's. And so then the Lord Masters call me up and they go, well, here's the situation. We've already, we sent him the script. He likes it. He wants to do it. And we said, the part is yours pending a meeting with the director, which was the saving grace. So I'd come back to LA. So I let them know I'm not doing it, but Mm -hmm. they asked me to take the meeting anyway, to come back to LA, take the meeting, and then blow the meeting, you know, find, <laughs> a, find a way to blow the meeting, um, which was not hard to do because you just, you just couldn't, you couldn't see him in the role there. I mean, you just couldn't, you couldn't put that character that you'd written uh, and Steven Seagal together uh, and, and in any way see the movie working. No, I, th- I thought it ought to be, ought to be something that we weren't familiar with and didn't carry all that baggage with him. So that's that's out of desperation when um, the same guy who was actually pitching Steven Seagal, Ted Field, had the uh, the now brilliant idea of Vin Diesel. He says, "What about this guy? I know him a bit. He's got his, he's he's kind of a filmmaker. He's kind of a hustler, <laughs> but he's got the look. He's got the voice. What do you think?" And so Vin and I talked, and then. Uh, he auditioned, we put him on a film with, with Rada and, and Cole. And then we cast him off that. So we we're basically got down to the place that every, most directors dream of. It's like just, okay, I'm down to the best available cast. I'm just able to cast the best available cast. And that was those three people. And I, I, I might be wrong here, but initially it was much more of a, a a, a triple header with the three of them, wasn't it? Riddick wasn't uh, quite as much of a focal point as he was uh, towards the end. Uh, in the original script, it was more of a, a you know, a Cole and Rada and Vin uh, equally. It was considered a three-hander going in, even though Cole was only around for, you know, the first uh, 70% of the movie. Mm. Um, and if anything, I thought it was probably Fry's movie. You know uh, the Rod Mitchell character, but then you know these things. These things happen. These things change as you edit, as you test screen, as you see the audience's reaction, and they love them. They're Riddick. Mm. So <laughs> when we had to go back and sort of ground the audience, the opening of the movie better than we were, uh, we added a voiceover. We had a voiceover from from Riddick's perspective, and that started to set the tone for the shift to more uh, it being more Riddick's movie. Yeah. Uh, 
and then I mean we've kind of caught up to where we started, which was Chronicles. But there's obviously there's more than Chronicles to still uh, cover, so I, I won't go too deep. But I do remember Vin the quote I, I, I loved at the time. And I'm sure he maybe said it with a cheeky smile on his face, but he described Chronicles as if Pitch Black was the Hobbit, Chronicles was the Lord of the Rings. And, uh, you know, that's, that really got my juices going, for want of a better expression. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was great. Um, I've said it numerous times I, on various podcasts. It upsets me a great deal that we did not get the planned trilogy that you had for Riddick based on following on from the Chronicles of Riddick. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, had money been no object after Chronicles, well, the writing in this case is dictated by the success of the previous movie. You know, you're only as good as your last movie. So Mm. the studio thought we overspent at $105 million for Chronicles because they did, well, ultimately they're gonna recoup that, of course, but they wasn't immediately remunerative enough for them. So they said, uh, we're, we're out of the Riddick, not just, we're not doing Riddick 3, but we're out of the Riddick game. But then in, in, in his sagacity, um, secured the rights to the next movie uh, as a trade-off for his cameo in Fast 3. Yeah. Amazing. So we're up, so we're up and running again. So remember, Universal kicked us to the curb because they thought we spent too much money and didn't mm-hmm. make enough money back, which is, per, you know, their option and their it's their privilege to do so. But now we're Vin and I are making independently. I'm writing the script on spec. We go out. We t- start to talk to Sony about distributing it. And then Universal steps back in. They say, well, what about us? They said, no, 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 you, you, you didn't want to do this movie. <laughs> you, you kicked us to the curb. So what are we? T- yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was, that was, now you're making it for a more reasonable amount. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. So anyway, we wound up uh, raising the money independently for the third movie. And Universal stepped in as a distributor, which is kind of the best of all worlds anyway. So that worked out great. And it's probably the role model for the, uh, for the fourth movie as well business model for the fourth movie so what was the original question well it was it was really about uh well i guess the question now is how different is the the riddick that you ended up making as in movie number three riddick how different is that to what you initially had planned as the third installment well very different because it's, it's dictated by budget now so we know what's what is feasible and what is not feasible um the original thinking was that we would uh play with the third movie, original thinking, remember, mm. where money was no object, we would uh, go to the Underverse, pursue Kier through the Underverse, play Orpheus Descending, and all the wildness and craziness that that would entail, and spectacle. But realizing that uh, we didn't have the money to do that for the third movie, we said, let's do more, let's do something else, and let's do something that fits the budget, and that was sort of the Jeremiah Johnson approach. Mm. So Unverse still looms. I'm trying to talk um, Vin and others into doing that as a console game. Oh, it'd wow. Be, it'd be hell of a good console game, right? I mean, just yeah. amazing. Because we've already done a video game and it was successful. It was a, a breakout movie, um, Escape from Butcher Bay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people really liked it. 
and did well. So there's no reason that we can't spin off some of these stories to the gaming world. And I think that's perfect for the gaming world. While Riddick 4 would then, I know that's going to be your next question, Riddick 4 would then um, sort of take us back to Furia, which is Riddick's home planet, and we would do his origin story there. Well, you knew what my next question was going to be. I mean, you call it Riddick Furia. It's he's going home. I mean, this has been the yeah. over the overarching journey that he's been on, like for especially yeah. since Chronicles. So you're sending him home now. I saw, uh, I think it was way back in 2019, which seems like a different time now. I think I saw Vin waving what looked like a, a finished script or may have been a treatment. I don't know. This is 2019. He's got a script in his hand on his Instagram account. He's waving the treatment. Yes, at the treatment of the time, people thought it was a finished script. It wasn't, uh, but the script is finished now. We were hoping to get cracking on it uh, pre-pandemic, and uh, now post-pand or nearly post-pandemic, we are hoping to get cracking on it again. So mm -hmm. we'll start to get serious about it pretty soon here. So it's all ready to go. And like, just to confirm, so you are self-financing again this time, giving yourself that freedom, and then perhaps someone distributing it, a studio or other coming in to distribute it. Anything's possible, but I think we would follow the uh, Riddick Three model of independent financing, and then. Mm -hmm somebody like Universal or Sony stepping in to I distribute. Mean, potentially. I, I, I just, you know, you sort of look at the, the, the landscape uh, of, of the way films are uh, put out there now, and obviously you've got these streaming services, you know, your Netflix, your, your Amazon. Um, an existing IP like this uh, with a built-in fan base seems like purpose-built for these streaming services to, to get on board uh, with and and potentially go great. Let's let's make that fourth movie. What do you want? We've got deep pockets. Yeah, there's that opportunity as well. Yeah, yeah. Good. That was a very diplomatic answer, David. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listen. Um, I guess all I want to know is: um, Are you excited? And are you, is Vin excited about this fourth movie? And um, should I be excited because I know you can't tell me anything and it would spoil it for me. I, I don't need to know too much. I just want to know, you know, is it the Thanks Riddick for 4? Thanks for that, for not probing too much. Um, are we, oh, the question is, are we excited? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, not many filmmakers get an opportunity to do these sort of hand, we're sort of a handcrafted franchise, if that makes it does. much sense. Because all the really big franchises, you know, fast things like that, are overseen by studios and overseen by a, a, a phalanx of, of executives. And we don't work that way. We're sort of, we are smaller and, you know, more nimble and more handcrafted. Um, and sometimes it shows when we try to stretch the dollars too thin, you know. Um, you can't you you can't go to ILM to do your effects and, and you can't you just can't uh, you don't have fifteen iterations of every visual effect shot you can, you got to try to get it right in you know four five six iterations um, so that you don't grind your company out of existence your visual effects company out of existence so but there is something very immediate about that and something very tactile about that kind of filmmaking, which I enjoy. So not many filmmakers have, a, have the opportunity to do a franchise that is enduring, a franchise that has a big star, a big star who is willing to go to, you know, any ends to make it work, even cutting his, uh, cutting his salary, which uh, Vin did for the third one, but to become a proper participant instead, which is what he, he and I did for the third one. Um, 
so it's just, yeah, it's a very exciting way to make films because it's not overly managed and it's not overly studio-fied and it can still be a little raw and, uh, and do well because of it. And I think what comes across to a, a fan like me and fans of the, the, the Riddick series is, is both yours and Vin's love for the character. I mean, mm. you know, at various points, both of you could have gone, well, that's that. And yet you haven't. You've, you've gone and you've made these movies, you've self-financed these movies. And I guess part of that is the knowledge that there is a, a very vocal fan base out there for them. There is, and and Vin keeps it alive as as much as as anyone, probably more than anyone, because he does love the character, and he realizes there's still potential in the character. So kudos to him; he's great yeah. like that, um, of just keeping the drumbeat going. And that's because, as much as people love Dom and Fast Furious, and that's what he's he's most known for, um, I'm thinking that the second most notable character he's played is Riddick. And he mm. hears that when he goes out and talks to the fans, when he hits the press circuit for, for Fast 9 or Fast 10 or Fast 11 or whatever we're up to, um, he'll hear that. And what about Riddick? And what about Riddick? <laughs> so the drumbeat starts there, and then Vin picks it up and he drumbeats it as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's sometimes cool. it Because it's, it's organic anyway, and uh, that's what's nice. It's, it, and it does happen the other way around. I've, I've sat in a junket interview with Vin uh, for Fast and Furious, and he's tried to rush the end of the interview so he could get his iPad out to show me some footage he had on it of Riddick. And I was like, this is amazing. Thank you. I do have to ask some Fast and the Furious questions, otherwise I lose my job. But let me see that Riddick footage. Um, Mr. David Tui, it's honestly, uh, the one, the, I have one uh, final question, which is, can I come full circle and be on the set of Riddick Furia? Because it will, it will be a nice loop. I'll have been there for Chronicles, and then, you know, 17 years later, I'll be on the set for Riddick Furia. It would be nice to get back and shoot, the, uh, shoot a movie in London, which is yeah. where you are. Yeah, it's right, yeah. Because I did uh, my summary movie below, my haunted summary movie below, yeah, in two thousand, uh, sorry, two thousand two. That's a great I, movie. That is, uh, it's so annoying uh, that more people haven't seen that movie. It right. is terrifying. I had, um, I had Dexter Fletcher on this very show oh, a couple Dexter. of weeks ago. Yeah, and he was talking about that movie. Uh, fond ah. memories. Yeah, it was. It was great. I mean, I had the greatest cast. When you have guys who are just willing to go, you know, most of the times on movies. Actors retreat to their trailers and you put out a call. You go, oh, fuck, how long is it going to take the actor to get out of his trailer now, the lead guy or whoever it is? And it takes like 20 minutes just to get people. You make the call and then 20 minutes later, everyone's there on the set. All right, what are we doing? It's like, that wasn't there. I mean, I had Dexter Fletcher. I had Jason Fleming. I had uh, Olivia Williams. Uh, Zach um, Galifianakis oh, in an early role. Zach is in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were all there. They liked it so much that they were hanging around on set. I mean, we had a big submarine set built at Shepperton, right? And a lot of floor space. And they would play, they would be like on the set, within reach, within sight, playing chess. They had a chess tournament going, you know, da 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 da. And they were hanging around all the time. They'd rather be on set than alone in their trailers. They'd rather be with me and the crew people and the other actors. And they were just there at the ready, ready to go. And that, that doesn't happen in every movie. Mm. And um, I don't know. 
So very fond memories. I'm glad Dexter has fond memories too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to, love to come back to London shoot again. Uh, great crews and great artisans there. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Dexter did actually say one of the parts he loved was the fact that when he, he dies in that movie, spoiler, but Kingsley, his character dies and he said uh, completely by chance, his leg ended up in the back of another shot uh, in his death pose. So he got three days extra work lying on his back being a corpse. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's right. That actually happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> David, fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with Riddick Furia, man. Alex, thank you so much. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the movies where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema picking what snacks they'd eat where they'd sit who they'd go with and of course what movies they'd screen if you love cinema as much as we do search a trip to the movies with alex zane or head to our socials at trip to movies pod that's at trip to movies pod to find out more